Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of the Hilaritas Podcast with me, your host, Mike Gathers. Join me here as we explore the vast world of iconic writer, psychedelic psychologist, rebel philosopher, and self-proclaimed agnostic mystic, Robert Anton Wilson. Visit us at hilaritaspress.com slash podcast for show notes, links, and past episodes. Right here, right now, it is my great pleasure to share with you my chat with novelist, poet, painter, and songwriter, Wayne Solomon, on his latest book, The Journey Across Forever. For those of you new to Wayne, his first two books were published with New Falcon, with extensive introductions by Bob Wilson. Wayne Solomon. Welcome to Laratos Podcast. Thank you very much. Lovely yeah. to be here. Yeah. I um, was excited to talk to you. I recognized your name. You have a new book out that we'll get to in a minute here. But uh, you wrote a couple books for New Falcon back in the, in the height of, was it in the 80s? Yes, uh, the Dream Illuminati came out in 1988, and the Illuminati of Immortality, a follow-up uh, novel, in 1992, actually. 92, okay. Yeah. And um, you, uh, I don't know what to say, got your foot in the door with New Falcon because you won a contest of sorts? Can you say more about that? Well, um only one year, Dr. Christopher S. Hyatt was the owner and publisher of Falcon Press. And one year he put in an ad in uh, a certain book about, you know, a public publisher's guide, you might say. Uh, and he received hundreds, he said, hundreds of solicitations. Did, uh, manuscripts and uh, he said they were piled from the floor to the ceiling but I was just lucky in the fact that when he read mine he liked it and uh, he got excited about it and it was called Vamana originally and was about uh, sort of touched on uh, flying dreams and the Vamanas of India that go back to the uh, the writings of the of Bhagavad Gita and that's era uh, with these flying machines, very strange flying machines in India, you know, in 2000 BC. And uh, so uh, he liked the story and he published it and we changed the name over time. Uh, it became the Dream Illuminati, which the Illuminati side of it was uh, the at the influence of Robert Anton Wilson, who uh, in his book, Cosmic Trigger, had talked about the Illuminati and had me intrigued with that notion. And uh, so Bob wrote a pretty extensive forward for that book, if I remember. He correctly. did, yeah. He wrote a great introduction, and he also wrote an extensive introduction to the Illuminati of Immortality. So I was very lucky there. And he was a big 
or is not was a big influence on you. Can you say a little bit more about that? How did you discover Bob Wilson? Uh, I had a friend that I met when I was on the road traveling. Uh, his name was Lauren Bowker, and he was just the right person at the right time. Sometimes we get lucky, we meet somebody. He was a huge fan of the beat writers, you know, Jack Kerouac mm. and Ginsburg and Burroughs and all those guys. And uh, he also was a fan of Robert Anton Wilson. So he introduced me to Robert Anton Wilson and to Buddhism in general. At that point, I uh, knew nothing about Buddhism or just very little. And um, so when I read Cosmic Trigger by Robert Anton Wilson, it just really inspired me so much. It's just, uh, there. it was life-altering is the only way I can mm. put it. Right book he, at the right time. Yeah. Well, his, his notion of syncretism was something I had uh, never heard of. And he talked about uh, syncretism, which is where you draw from the wisdom traditions, the spiritual traditions from all around the globe. And you... Basically, what do you resonate with when you read or hear about these various ideas? And uh, Wilson said, it's it's a great way to create your own personal viewpoint, you know, on these very fundamental metaphysical matters. And uh, he also, in that book, Cosmic Trigger, talked about uh, being an agnostic mystic. So, you know, we think of, we certainly at the time I was thinking, a mystic is somebody who has these great visions of, of God directly or some kind of divine vision that uh, then you, you know all the answers, you know, and it's a great notion, but who knows all the answers? Even a mystic is still caught up in a great mystery, you know, and uh, so agnostics, it's... Uh, it's an acceptable thing to say, I don't know. I only know so much. This is what I do know. But this is what I don't know. And uh, to be upfront and honest about it, like nobody has all of the answers. And, you know, for thousands of years, humanity has been trying to determine how we came to be and how this universe came to be and so forth. And, you know, physics is making its contribution but spirituality, uh, the religious viewpoint has certainly made its contribution. So I believe in being holistic about it and taking from all of these sources. So that's syncretism. Gotcha. Thank you for that. I uh, I had to look that one up myself when I was <laughs> reading your work. And uh, the words that came up for me as you were talking were design your own religion. Yeah. Um, but the other thing you touched into the the I don't know the mystery and I I wrote in my notes and I don't know if this came from from you because it was kind of a jumble of notes but I'll throw it out there see if you recognize it ultimate reality is a mystery for a reason yeah well I did have a I do have a chapter in the journey across forever um, about that that maybe life is strange for a reason and that is mm. to compel us 
or to inspire us to uh, seek answers. If everything was just uh, totally and completely obvious, we wouldn't seek these kinds of uh, mysteries or pursue them, you know? So I think I, I called the chatter a reality being stranger than we think for a reason. And uh, John Alexander, who wrote the introduction, or the, sorry, the foreword to The Journey Across Forever, um, some viewers may be uh, familiar with Colonel Alexander, but he's written books like uh, on UFOs and paranormal experiences and so forth. And he has a law that basically once every time we think we have everything figured out, something else comes along to alter the whole paradigm, you know. So we're constantly mm -hmm. evolving because of it. And mm -hmm. life, he says, is much more complicated and complex than we ever imagined. And UFOs, among other paranormal phenomena, certainly show us that because we're we're in the midst of a great mystery here and you know we can we can lament that or we can be inspired by it so my my whole thing and the the journey across forever is to try to inspire people and say it's this way for a reason mm. This is how we spiritually evolve. Uh, otherwise, we would just be robots or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So the journey across forever is your new book, and, and we'll we'll continue to dig into that. Um, boy, what what hit me there? Just the idea that uh, just when we get things think we things have things figured out it kind of we get the rug pull on us um yeah. before you said that my mind was like well there the more we find out through scientific discoveries it often leads to just more questions so it's almost like there's this never-ending sense of mystery and unknown but uh this idea that once we do think we get things figured out and then we get a total rug pull uh i like that as well that really resonates with me. Um, our listeners are probably tired of me talking about the Grateful Dead, but I was a big fan back in the early 90s. And uh, it was one of those things, especially as they were getting older, you know, as human, they were improvisational. But as you get older and as you so on and so forth, you just fall into patterns because you're human as well. And, and yes, so just yes. when you think you got the band figured out, they would do something completely unexpected and you would just mind-blowing yeah well that was the beauty of the beatles is that they were constantly recreating themselves or reinventing themselves uh, uh, over their careers and dylan the same now there are chapters i just mentioned in the journey across forever there's entire chapter on the beatles uh, their influence on me and world culture and the same for dylan the influence on me and on world culture because okay. these figures are titanic you know absolutely so creative and original and so forth great inspiration you know mm, i want to i want to dig into that further i have to confess as a as a music fan that the beatles and dylan have never quite struck a chord with me 
Yeah. But, uh, I love Dylan's songwriting, but I haven't really tuned into their music. But uh, so, so Journey Across Forever is, is the new book. Uh, what's the headline of this book? You've talked about it a little bit, but. It's, um, it, I call it, I subtitled it, A Magical Provocative Odyssey Across the Ages, Around mm. the World, and Into the Great Beyond. So that kind of sums up. So we talk at length about uh, sort of looking at the history of humanity and saying, why on earth were we so aggressive and violent with each other? Why were there all mm. these wars and such? It's uh, And then at the same time, we're creating religions that, uh, you know, then get at loggerheads at, with each other. Uh, the Crusades, the Holy Inquisition, uh, very, very uh, distorted ways of looking at spirituality, you know, um, to have killing involved. And of course, the jihadists today and so forth. Uh, so I touch on that, but um, and I don't want to bring anybody down by, you know, over, I didn't want to overdo that side of it, but it's part of our reality. We have to face it. And we have to say, look, this is medieval thinking. It's time to move on. So I try to carry the whole thing into the 21st century. And uh, I have traveled the world. So when I say uh, a magical, provocative odyssey around the world, uh, there are scenes in Cairo and the Great Pyramid and in India Mm. The temples, the sacred temples on the Ganges, and I found a, a power stone in Australia, and I tell the story about that, which we might get into a little later. Uh, so I have traveled the world. I, I started traveling at a very young age. In the late 60s, early 70s was a time when a lot of young people were hitting the road, as they say. Uh, I mentioned about reading Jack Kerouac's On the Road. That really got me super excited. And my friend and I, we traveled up to Alaska, to Kodiak Island, and, uh, you know, all through British Columbia, the Yukon. So a lot of road trips, but a lot of flights across Europe, across Asia, lived in Australia for a time. And then when I mentioned about the great beyond, uh, there are numerous chapters on the afterlife in this book. And uh, what I think the uh, near-death returnees say about the afterlife is actually a new para a new spiritual paradigm for humanity. So I think it's absolutely crucial that we listen to what they say because we have tens of thousands of reports by now uh, by people who, thanks to modern-day resuscitation methods, have been to the other side and back. And uh, it's it's really amazing how much uh, there is unanimity in the things they say about, say, that the, they travel through the tunnel uh, and uh, arrive in this paradise-like place and mm -hmm. have uh, they meet loved ones they meet beings of light and they have a life review which is 
absolutely very, very important uh, to the spiritual paradigm that I write about. Yeah, I, I, I want to slow this down a little bit because this is this this particular subject I found the most uh, fascinating out of out of everything. Um, so you, you go through the tunnel, you meet various loved ones and, and perhaps family and friends. Um, and, and there's a life review. Can you say, well, maybe back up. So and beings of light that are assisting this process. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, the beings of light are fascinating all in themselves there. They seem to radiate such love and uh, security to the the soul that has passed over. And there's this feeling that, that you are loved and they can communicate with us telepathically which is interesting that they don't say, you know, hello, I'm uh, Gabriel or Michael the Archangel. They don't give <laughs> their names because they're, the resonance of their energetic being is what envelops the soul that's there. And uh, somehow they communicate truth to us, uh, true facts or true knowledge via a telepathic method we don't understand but uh almost invariably everyone says that's the way it happens hmm. and uh there was a very fascinating uh i write about my favorite uh, near death returnee story uh by a man named uh melon uh melon thomas i think it is but uh he says you know he was entering this realm and the being of light appeared and he felt all this love and so forth but he said wait a minute hold on here can we pause just a moment i have some questions and he said to his surprise everything paused as requested and he said thank you uh, i have some questions i'd like to ask and uh the really important information he shared with us is uh that basically no religion is the religion that these beings are a part of or subscribe to um no religion stands out above any other everybody is equal whether you're an atheist or madly into whatever religion you know that you happen to be while on earth but you know the love is there it doesn't matter and it's very important that uh you understand as this is what he learned from it that whatever religion you're familiar with from your time on earth you're going to kind of get a feedback loop of that information mm -hmm. so you know, you might see, he saw Jesus, he saw Krishna, he saw Buddha, mm. he saw mandalas, he saw sacred symbols, and the whole thing just kept like, uh, you know, running through all these images. And he understood that you get a feedback loop of whatever images you're most comfortable with. And it seems that in that initial phase of crossing over into the great beyond, we're given uh, familiarity where we see landscapes that 
we're used to here on earth. So the whole idea of familiarity is very important because then we're comfortable and we relax mm -hmm. into it and we realize everything's okay. Um, I'm not uh, in hell or going to be punished here and so forth. And sorry, mm -hmm. then um, we have the life review, which right. I I write about in the book as being the ultimate karmic moment. Mm. So everything that we have seen and felt during the course of our lives, we see all of that again. So we see our lives again. We feel everything we felt. But more yeah. importantly, we feel what we made others feel, how we made others feel. And this is where I say the ultimate karmic moment occurs. So if you were cruel, if you were physically cruel or psychologically cruel, that is going to come back to you not only in full, but magnified, intensified, according to these near-death returnees. Uh, some have said that, you know, whatever their transgressions, it was absolutely excruciating mm -hmm. to re-experience or to experience what they made other people feel. So this is really, really crucial to come to grips with here and now while we're in this life, because then we can alter our behavior and say, you know what? Karma is real. What we do to others does come back to us. And if you want a happy future, if you want a bright and beautiful future, then you just sow the proper seeds. We reap what we sow. And it's a it's we have the free will, but our actions have consequences. So we learn to adapt our karma to uh, positive behaviors that will come back to us and help to bring us to what I think is a paradise uh, beyond. Ooh. Before we go there to paradise, I want to I want to <laughs> hang out on this this life review for a minute longer. Um. Yeah. So there's a certain sense of with with freedom comes responsibility. I mean, I can show up how I want as a human being, but at the end of the day, in my life review, I'm going to own that responsibility of how I showed up, maybe I could say. Exactly. And uh, the, maybe this is part of my background as a psychotherapist, but there's something about developing a capacity to feel more that comes up for me. If this life review is about feeling everything we've already felt and, and feeling everything we've made others felt, um, and I guess I'm just saying, is this like a test? And the more I can hold that space, so to speak, of feeling all those things, the more I will uh, pass on to the next reincarnation a little differently. I'm just making things up here, but does that yes. resonate with you at all? Well, I know what you're saying, um, but we're testing ourselves, I think, is the okay. crucial thing there to understand. Uh God doesn't stand over us and judge us. Even the being of light apparently doesn't stand uh, over us and judge us. 
we judge ourselves and the whole thing is it's a learning process and it's like there are often uh, people say they were asked like well what could you have done differently there you know uh nobody is punished or condemned for uh the things they've done unless you know it gets into really evil territory which apparently uh just to put this little note in those of such a profoundly evil nature are apparently spirited away elsewhere nobody has ever come back from that to say what those people experience so mm -hmm. the hitlers and the stalins and the murderers and the really vicious people uh, are just spirited away somewhere. But most of us, of course, are just typical human beings who try to do good and we are selfish sometimes or we have small transgressions and so forth and we hurt people's feelings and we say things we wish we wouldn't have said or we try to take advantage of people and maybe get the bigger pieces of pie for ourselves and so forth. So these kind of things, uh, you do become more sensitive if you pursue this as a spiritual path to all your behaviors, you know, and uh, if you become what I say is hypervigilant, mm. this is mindfulness at its absolute best, you know, where every thought, word, and deed is really uh, thought about uh, as you're experiencing the moment. So you, you know, we all have thoughts that might pop into our head that are not exactly uh, noble, shall we say, but you can immediately say, well, you know, I'm not going to feed energy to that thought. That mm -hmm. one's out. But another one pops in, you go, yes, I like this, I'll go with this, and then you speak. And then you start your take whatever action. Karma means action. So whatever action you're taking is going to ultimately, um, you're, you're putting out into the world energy that is going to eventually come back to you in some form, not necessarily exactly in the same way, but Overall, uh, we will experience uh, a rebalancing of those energies uh, in the after uh, the life review that I was speaking about here. Yeah. Um, well, the big takeaway I got the the main one I got there is that we I think your phrase was we test ourselves. Yeah, and that it's it's really it all comes down to us in a way. And there's something about having these conscious intentional acts with the knowledge of how we show up is going to come back to us in the end. Um, yeah. I think it's important to this notion that has been around for centuries, if not millenniums, that God is watching you and judging you and is going to punish you if you didn't follow his commandments and so forth. That's not really the way it is. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's where you're being asked to look at your behavior and say, you know, and it's a very loving thing, these beings of light. It's like, well, what could you have done better there? You know, it's easy <laughs> to think of them as angels. It's no problem thinking of them as angels. And uh, 
So it's a beautiful experience, uh, but it can be made all the more beautiful and intense if we sow the right seeds here and now. So it is important to live it here and now. It's not just about once we leave this planet, you know. So the book is very heavy on that side of things, uh, philosophically, you might say. Um, so, yeah, that's that's that side of it, into the and, great beyond. And, right. And so that, that would be my next question. We, we You touched on it. And it's, so we go through this life review and we have to experience all this. And and then and then um, what's next? That is interesting <laughs> to consider, but it's purely speculative, right? Okay. Yeah. The, uh, of course, uh, yogis for thousands of years have said that uh, you can move up to higher planes of existence. So um, even in the Western world, if you study the religious traditions and spiritual traditions, uh, they talked about the seven heavens, and again, you're you're able to rise up to better, uh, well, let's say more blissful mm. forms of of uh, existence. Um, but if if you haven't fully learned your lessons, we come back to the earth or a place like the earth, uh, and. Again, now, this is interesting. If you really study this, you find out that we make the choice to come to Earth, to probably uh, most likely to learn specific spiritual lessons. And uh, if we didn't do well, let's say if we were selfish, then we need to be in a situation where we must give of ourselves uh, and uh, redress that uh, selfishness. Mm -hmm. So um, apparently we have soul groups in the mm -hmm. other realm and uh, 10, 15 souls that are uh, we're constantly sort of recycling through reincarnation with and helping one another and choosing roles, choosing the body we inhabit and the the culture that we will be a part of and so forth. So, uh, you know, that's uh, everything seems to be about choice. And even strangely enough, even in the UFO literature today, where a lot of people have been abducted or some have been abducted, uh, and they would say afterwards uh, under hypnosis that they had actually chosen to have such an experience uh, before mm -hmm. coming to Earth. So that's kind of a mind-blowing notion. And I'm not saying that it's, you know, that I know that that's absolutely true. But uh, it is interesting to think that uh, we choose everything that basically happens to us but we do have free will at the same time uh to to deal with it you know to mm -hmm. react to mm -hmm. to events so free will then being the the choice on how we show we how we respond to the event exactly yes and i might add i guess there's a kind of a habitual response and free will would be the uh 
choice to show up differently. Yeah, like we're 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 very much indoctrinated into a culture, or you could say we're acculturated uh, from a young age, and this is this is fine. This is the way it has to be. Uh, we have amnesia about the other world, uh, and that's part of the design, uh, apparently. And uh, we're indoctrinated into a culture, and we we soon gain uh, habitual ways of looking at the world and thinking about the world. Uh, the paradigm that we grew up with becomes, for many, a lifelong a uh, way of looking at life that never changes. But I think, um, and I write about this in the journey across forever, that spiritual liberation is a way to break through social conditioning. Mm -hmm. And Robert Anton Wilson was fantastic at writing about that sort of thing uh, and talking about reality tunnels and how we get uh, so into seeing things a certain way. And he would uh, talk about all the various possibilities that are there, you know, and uh, he is the one who opened my mind to the idea of multidimensional reality mm. and that we're not just in one groove and have to stay there for the remainder of our lives. We can break through, we can throw off the chains, the veils, or break through the veils of illusion and so forth. Right, and, right. and that's that's spiritual liberation in that then you can think for yourself mm. and decide what you want to believe. Nice. Well, I don't know if this is a shift of gears or not, but I want to... Uh, guide us into you mentioned alien or ufo abductions and i have to admit i i've never really gotten too into this subject but I, and i've always kind of lumped aliens and ufos in one group and and now i'm starting to want just in one like category in my head here and i'm uh starting to separate them a little bit more maybe you can talk first about aliens well the uh one of the chapters in the book is called Close Encounter, A Close Encounter with Jim Mars, who uh, was the author of, uh, it was called Alien Agenda, or is called Alien Agenda. And that book is apparently the best-selling book on UFOs of all time. And Jim Mars has been on the program Ancient Aliens and so forth. Well, I met Jim in Aurora, Texas, where uh, a uh, craft of some kind apparently smashed into a windmill in 1897. And it was written about in uh, the Dallas newspaper. And um, the thing that I, I mainly learned from Jim's book, uh, he had great bits about uh, remote viewing in it, by the way, but Hmm. Uh, really captivating ideas of what the remote viewers have seen and what they think. But the thing I write about in this particular chapter is how he broadly divides the alien uh, presence into three categories. There are the Nordic humanoids, and then there's the greys that Whitley Strieber made famous. 
And then there are what he called the transcendentals. Now, I postulate that the transcendentals are probably those we have called angels over the years, over the centuries and millenniums. And possibly the greys are the demons, you know, mm. uh, because all through history, uh, we see evidence that some strange beings have appeared time and again, and they're not human. Like mm -hmm. they can appear and disappear. Like even the fairies were said to be able to appear and disappear. So there's the the lore of the gentry and the jinn and all these, you know, right around the globe, uh, these different beings. Uh, I myself have seen what I believe were Nordic humanoids. And I tell this story in the book where my brother and I were in front of our home. I was around 10 or 11, my brother a couple years older. We were throwing a baseball back and forth in the front yard. This was in Ohio. And it was a perfect sunny summer day, not a cloud in the sky. And we were in the front yard, as I say, when from the back, this round silver craft came flying over the house and it was so low in the sky that i almost could have hit it with a baseball and i i note that it was not like a typical flying saucer but it had this shape the round shape and the flatness no sound you didn't hear a, an any kind of engine or anything or motor uh, but it had this, it was a flat shuttlecraft-like um, thing that had a railing around it. And there were two beings standing at the back of this railing. And uh, this handsome couple, a man and a woman, they looked very human. So uh, that's why I think they were humanoid, because... Uh, We've never seen such a craft again, and nobody has pictures of such craft anywhere. But my brother and I, we waved up at them, and they waved down at us. And there's just this beautiful scene where, you know, this really newfangled, uh, strange, exotic craft came flying over. And, like, their hair wasn't even blowing about, mm. which made me think that you know, they were in some kind of magnetic field of some kind. But uh, we ran in to get our mother and uh, we called her out and she came out and she could see it in the distance that was flying on. But, uh, you know, at that time, I didn't realize what I was experiencing. But maybe 10 years later, I thought, wait a minute, what was that? And my brother and I were equally intrigued and wondering, what did we see that day, you know? And then I started reading all this UFO literature to try to, to find out what I, what I had seen. And uh, I've only ever found one account that's similar in uh, Bowie, I, I don't know if I pronounce this correctly, but it's in Papua New Guinea. And uh, there was this priest who had a mission there. And this craft, uh, round craft, floated above their village. And I think it was the priest and maybe 30 uh, native peoples 
And again, there was a railing around the top of the craft and uh, they waved at the, the beans there and the beans waved at them. Uh, Jacques Vallée uh, tells that story uh, in okay. one of his books. Um, so that was the first experience. And uh, it was another night then uh, three or four years later where it was a summer night again and all the stars were out and everything. And this oblong craft came flying toward us in silence and uh, no lights hardly at all, but the top of it was a little bit lit up. And uh, I was walking with a friend across the field and we were going to his place uh, it was completely dark, but we could see this craft, and we thought, what is that? And we were puzzled, and uh, then we both simultaneously had this feeling that it had seen us, which mm. uh, you hear about that in the UFO literature, where the thing becomes aware of you, mm. and it startles you, it startles you, you know, uh, suddenly, like, this thing knows I'm here looking at it. And then the strangest thing happened. The top of the deck burst into flames, crackling flames. They were The thing was so low in the sky, we could hear the flames. And this was after it kind of turned and was following us. So we, we were running at that point. And then the thing broke into these flames on top. And then in a few seconds later, it was just like snuffed out. And then the craft just floated on and it had turned direction completely at a right angle. And the smoke was trailing behind it and it just floated off into the night. So it was one of those really peculiar uh, <laughs> yeah things that uh, sometimes get associated with UFOs and the paranormal and kind of Colonel Alexander's notion there that uh, you think you have something figured out. You're like, what is this? This is really puzzling. Yeah. So uh, that was my, uh, I've seen lights up in the sky that have circled around and this sort of thing, but those were my close encounters, shall we say. Goodness. Um, so the second one was did not involve any alien presences, just a, a UFO. Yeah, sort. I, we couldn't see anybody. Gotcha. No. And yeah. and the first one, the the Nordics are those. They're humanoids. What? Well, gosh, so many directions to go here. Um, I guess what strikes me about your first one and maybe your second one, well, is they were just so feel like they were so concrete and tangible. Like these were not non-ordinary experiences other than obviously what you're witnessing. Yeah. But it wasn't like you were in an altered uh, or non-ordinary state of consciousness yourself. Right. It and we were very, very young. So this was all before yeah. any of that kind of stuff was right. even thought of. <laughs> you know yeah six and... the six this was in the 60s uh when i was still too young to be a part of the uh you know the love generation <laughs> all that stuff going sure. on sure and, and that and I, influence I, came later 
obviously those uh, substances could make a huge difference, but even yeah. just, uh, you know, sometimes we can just find ourselves in a non-organ. I don't know. I guess I just assume when a UFO shows up, we might find ourselves in a non-ordinary state of consciousness, whether we like it or not, or just so paradigm shattering, we might. Well, um, the, uh, the, the Navy uh, videos, you know, that have emerged about the, like the TikTok. Mm-hmm. That uh, I mean, those men are military men, and they're you know they're using all the latest gadgetry the, to film it and to to uh, the radar and everything like that. And there does seem to be a concrete presence of some kind, but at the same time, uh. They can, you know, soar off at 8,000 miles an hour in an absolute instant right. or cover 60 miles in six seconds or something like that. And it's like, how can this possibly be uh, an object that's, you know, subject to the laws of physics as we know them? Right. Yes. So that's and that makes sense to me in a way, because I. In my mind it's a long distance to somewhere else in the, you know, in the galaxy where, yeah. where, and so my assumption is they have developed uh, ways to travel that, you know, go beyond normal space time and just hitting the thrusters. Uh, yeah. But Warp who, speed. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so what's your sense of what's going on here? It seems like we're having more and more sightings lately. It's been, you know, uh, yeah. Sometimes we and, seem to relate these these uh, occurrences to like the more planetary stress. So, like during you know the nuclear weapons threats, we might have more sightings in the eighties, and then that subsided. Now we're just kind yeah. of in a, a geopolitical instability, and now we're having more sightings. Um, what do you think? I think we are uh, reaching a point where basically everyone's going to kind of realize that this is a real phenomenon. Uh, we're having congressional meetings, uh, the famous New York Times, uh, you know, uh, article about uh, Louis Elizondo, who resigned from uh, a Pentagon program. And this was uh, December 17, 2017. Uh, that to me was the moment that I think uh, when everything changed, because this was published, you know, in the New York Times mm -hmm. and elsewhere, um, and it, it admitted that uh, the Pentagon had this, you know, million-dollar program going, had been going for some time. Uh, Elizondo was frustrated that there were people, you know, the higher brass weren't admitting publicly that UAPs, as they were calling them then, uh, unidentified aerial phenomena were real. And, uh, but this basically said, you know, this was the moment of disclosure where they're saying, but they are real. They're real, but we don't know what they are. Now, the military doesn't want to admit they don't know how to deal with these objects or they can't say where they come from or why why they're here or how they do what they do it's all of that is a total mystery 
Yeah. And uh, like Jack Vallée, he would say, uh, we've been sort of led down a very, very long winding trail uh, with little clues along the way, experiences along the way. And this, like this second sighting of mine, there was an absurd element to it. But he thinks uh, that is so that, you know, people will be able to say, oh, that, that's not true. That can't be true. You know, that's that's bull. Uh, whereas another would say, no, no, I get it. I get it. That's probably real. So it leaves it ambiguous. Right. And uh, so it's been ambiguous like that for ages, millenniums, really. And, uh, you know, for me, like when I visited the Great Pyramid uh, in Egypt or uh, something like the trilithon uh, blocks of stone in Baalbek are, uh, you know, they're indicative of the fact that here's uh, the trilithon blocks are three blocks of granite weighing uh, over a hundred tons. Mm. These were quarried, carried up a hill and placed on top of other giant boulders that had also been carved and shaped. And it's like, we can't do it today. And of course, in South America, there are all these walls that have um, these stones, giant tonnage, uh, you know, stones cut to perfection and put together you can't even slip a piece of paper between the cracks. So we can't do that today. How did they do that? All that, uh, all those centuries ago uh, with ropes and, uh, you know, uh, copper tools. I don't think so. <laughs> so uh, something real has been going on, but we, they've, for some reason, our friends, our visitors, our allies, whatever they are, have taken a very, very long time to bring us even to this point. But mm. I think we are reaching a tipping point. And with congressional hearings and people at high levels uh, in government admitting they do believe that these UAPs are for real, uh, but that we don't know exactly right. you know, where they come from or how they do what they do. Um, so the young people today, I find, they all believe that uh, there's more life in the universe than than just us, you know. And it just seems obvious now in retrospect, doesn't it, that uh, the, the, the universe has to be full of life. But sure. um, it's also seemingly multidimensional. And uh, the, the current thinking, like with uh, Colonel Alexander and Jacques Vallée, uh, you know, the preponderance seems to be that these are interdimensional beings of some type who who have that capability of manifesting in our particular dimension, but, uh, you know, can also disappear from it, mm. which just makes no sense to us at all. Uh, there's a famous UFO case where uh, a jet fighter went chasing after the UFO and it disappeared in front of the pilot. And the next thing he knew in an instant, the thing was following him. How is that possible? 
it's impossible to, according to the laws of physics as we know them. So you can really, I think, speculate and really uh, up the ante on the whole idea of the multidimensionality of our existence. Ah, so maybe that's that's the the point to take here, because what I'm getting is that we're coming to a point of what I might call cultural acceptance, where we're starting to all kind of agree this is a thing. And at the same time, we have no idea what the heck they're up to and why and how and all that jazz. Um, but you you just made that last point, and I think it really slipped my mind, but that I think that was... Um, just the acceptance be, of multidimensionality. Like it that. seems that they want us to to lead us to evolve uh, our thinking to include them, or to realize that just the basic a materialist paradigm mm -hmm. is not all there is. You know, there is more mm -hmm. to it, and. Uh, uh, Whitley Strieber, who endorsed uh, the book, The Journey Across Forever, uh, he has a new book out at this point called Them. And he talks, you know, he's trying to figure that out as well. And he says in it that he said the abduction phenomenon seems to have uh, receded and is no longer occurring. Mm. So it's like uh, there are waves of activity uh, there was a point at which UFOs were hovering over nuclear missile facilities. And a very famous case in Malmstrom where they turned off like 10 nuclear missiles. They just shut them down one after the next. And then when everybody, all the technicians were like going crazy, like what is going on here? One by one, they came back on online. Wow. And uh, almost, I don't know, of course, there's the Rendlesham Forest case and so forth. So there's just so many documented cases where UFOs have um, interacted with military sites. And uh, so, you know, what's next? Who knows? Uh, yeah. But like uh, so many movies are also kind of working strategically uh, to get everyone to understand that the phenomenon is real. Um, and yeah, I think. Go ahead. The young, well, just to say, you know, as I said before, like the young are really, like to them, this is just as normal as a cell phone. Like is this is part of reality today and right. they don't even question it which means a whole new paradigm has been achieved you know true so yeah sort of a, a new paradigm of acceptance that this is out there we don't exactly know why but maybe uh part of their function is to open us up to reality beyond mundane materialist space time as we know it and to other multi-dimensions to Absolutely. be defined as we That's as we go perfectly along. stated right there. Goodness. That's excellent insight. All right. Wow. <laughs> now, if I may. Oh, um, please. 
I'd like to tell the story about the power stone I found in Australia because it involved a non-human entity uh, that, to me, proved that there are non-human entities, shall we say. Yeah, so um, I was living in Australia uh, in the late 70s. And uh, I'd been on holiday or a vacation, uh, uh, living in Melbourne, went to Perth, which is a huge distance, like from New Orleans to L.A., something like that. So it's a huge distance on the road. And, uh, you know, had a couple weeks out in the Perth area and so forth, and then heading back. Uh, long, long road trip. So at one point, uh, I had I knew I had a whole nother day to go before getting back to Melbourne. Getting tired of being on the road. So at random, totally at random, saw this dirt road down to the ocean and got off the highway, went down to the ocean, set up the tent uh, for the night. This was early mid-afternoon, though, uh, taking the afternoon off type thing. Well, I went exploring. I love rocks and shells and things like that. And I'm always exploring and looking for these things just for fun. But uh, I noticed there was a cave at the water's edge and the tide was out. So I had to get down on my knees and look in. But when I looked inside the cave, I could see sunlight. Mm. So I was a bit baffled by this, but then I quickly realized, okay, when the tide is high, this is probably a blowhole inside this particular cavern. It was small enough, but uh, still uh, sizable at the same time. So intrigued, I crawled into this uh, little uh, space, this little cave, and uh, in the midst of the sunlight was a long, oblong or an oblong stone of some kind with crisscrossing bands on it so mm. it seemed like i don't know if it was sandstone or granite uh, or a combination or what it was exactly but it was a really cool stone about as long as my forearm and uh i assumed it had been rolled in the surf for countless centuries is why it looked the way it looked and somehow the striations, the crisscrossing bands were probably, uh, you know, from sediments, sediments that uh, settled millions of years ago. Anyway, I took the stone from the cave and uh, spent the night there. And the next day back in Melbourne, I unloaded the car, took things into the house and had things, uh, some things including this particular stone on the bedroom floor. So I just set them out. I took a shower. I sat back on the bed to uh, just read and relax. I, I picked up Gary Snyder's Turtle Island uh, book of poetry, and I was reading that. And so this was, this was early enough in the day. There was still daylight out there, but I had the, the light on in the bedroom. And there was this uh, overhead light that was hanging from the middle of the room with a green Chinese lantern uh, shade on it. So I was reading and uh, relaxing, as I say, and I happened to look up at one point 
And I noticed there was a mist all around this green Chinese lantern. It was very, very visible. Mm -hmm. Now, I thought, is this smoke? You know, at first I had a little bit of a panic. And, uh, mm. but uh, a bit of investigation. No, no, there's no smoke here. There's no smell of smoke. There's no reason why there would be smoke. And, but the room, the whole top of the room was full of mist. And then I noticed there's this old black Victorian fireplace in the room. And over by the fireplace across the room, I could see a large spiral spinning in the midst of the mist. Mm. And the spiral was large. It was maybe, you know, half my size, like uh, my upper torso, like that large. And it was just spinning there in the mist. Now, if the mist hadn't been there, I wouldn't have been able to see this at all. There was a clock by the bed, and I, uh, so, you know, I noticed the time. I also played with the lights to make sure I wasn't uh, fooling myself or hallucinating or something. Um, but the spiral stayed there. And for a whole solid hour, I was more or less, I was thinking, I sense some kind of intelligence here. And I was kind of talking quietly to this this spiral of energy. And at one point, the spiral came toward me and it entered me and it swirled around inside me like it was checking me out. And then it just backed up and went right back to the same place. So like I say, for over an hour, this went on. And uh, then somebody started a, a car outside the house and it seemed like that altered the dynamic of the situation. And this spiral started crackling and it shot up through the ceiling and disappeared. And in an absolute instant, so did the mist. The mist mm -hmm. just totally cleared out. Well, a few days later, this Australian couple came over and I was showing them things and they saw this rock and they said, I think you've got an Aboriginal artifact here. You know, it's illegal to take one of these from there, wherever they happen to be. So I was a bit, uh, you know, um, yeah. concerned at that yeah. point. But it really then struck me, wow, this, this does seem to be some kind of special artifact of some kind. So about a week later, I happened to be uh, out shopping and I went into this one particular store where Aborigine things were being sold, didgeridoos and spear throwers and, you know, uh, boomerangs, all that kind of stuff, but a lot of Aborigine art and so forth as well. And there was a woman there, an Aborigine woman, and I just thought, I'm going to ask her what she thinks. So I, I did ask her, and she was very nice about it. Uh, I explained that I may have inadvertently taken an Aboriginal artifact. Um, and she said, well, I have a friend who is a professor at the university, and he knows all about these kinds of things. So uh, why don't you bring me the stone, and I'll take it to him, and we'll find out. So... 
that's what I did. And uh, a few days after I gave her the stone, I got this phone call from her and she was a bit full of apologies about, I had to give the stone away. I had to give it away. And I, I said, well, what happened? She said her friend, the professor, had determined it was indeed an Aborigine artifact. In fact, it was a power stone, she said. It was a Chiringa. And a Dreamtime entity was probably living in that stone. So suddenly mm -hmm. things all added up, uh, the wow. spiral in the mist and all this. So... She said, I had to give it to them. They flew two Aborigine shaman from South Australia, where I had gotten the stone, to Melbourne to collect the stone. And she said to them, it's not mine to give you. And they said, you give us the stone or we point the bone at you. Oh. <laughs> and this to Aborigines is a death sentence. Mm. So this was serious, serious business to them. They had flown these people to collect that stone. That's how important it was to them. But it finally made sense what had happened in about the spiral. And I realized this was a dreamtime entity, a non-human entity. There was intelligence there. It had come toward me, had entered me, had checked me out, had backed up to the same place and so forth. Um so I was, I'm convinced in retrospect that this was a Dreamtime entity. And, uh, you know, subsequent research, uh, I found out that there are all these spirals pecked into stones all over Australia. Hmm. They're called petroglyphs. And uh, they do, in you know, believe that uh, we humans come from the Dreamtime and we return to it. And they generally characterize these uh, dreamtime entities as ancestors. Mm. So um, whether they are all once were all once human and then uh, you know return to the dreamtime and be entered just an energetic state, a non-physical state, or whether they never were, I don't know, but very intriguing and to me was proof that there are non-human entities and to me it bolsters the whole idea of the afterlife that perhaps this is our true form as well in this spiraling uh, spiraling ball of energy you know um, it, it makes sense in a certain way so I think it's an intriguing thought you know and yeah. I write about that in the book as well okay wow and I might just add, uh, here in Ireland, where I now live, uh, there's a place called Newgrange, which is their most famous uh, megalithic site. It's, uh, Newgrange is said to be over 5,000 years old, so uh, it, they claim it's even older than the pyramids. But what is at the opening of that particular uh, site? spirals on stone and when you enter the chamber which uh the light from the winter solstice will enter that uh, every year on uh, december 22nd hmm. but uh it lights up the inner chamber and there's a very very famous uh triple spiral uh carved into the wall there 
And uh, the Celtic tradition is uh, very reverent uh, in terms of uh, the spiral as a sacred symbol. And perhaps this is the reason, because this is the way, this is the true shape, the true shape of, of uh, our being, you know? Mm. So it's actually petroglyphs of spirals all over the earth. Uh, Native Americans also have spirals and, okay. you know, petroglyphs. Spiral is a uh, prominent symbol uh, with Hilaritas Press now. Um, oh, yes. Bob Wilson, Bob Wilson had a, a spiral ring. Yes. And uh, you can actually buy, yeah. Re reproductions of that now interesting so i haven't thought much about the spiral but that's uh i don't even know what to say there <laughs> soaking that one in well, well it's just... one of the stories uh you know in the book and i think the book covers a lot of territory but i think as multi-dimensional beings uh we have a lot of different facets to ourselves you know and we have all these interests and intrigues. And uh, for me, this is like a lifetime of experience, which, uh, you know, the people I've met and the things I've learned and so forth. And I try to bring it all together in, in a synthesized way and a comprehensive but entertaining way yeah. uh, with the book. And uh you know, it, it just, it's exciting. Robert Anton Wilson inspired me, as did Timothy Leary. And he and Timothy Leary were great friends. Mm. And the cosmic trigger is, at least a third of the book is about Timothy Leary. So uh, I was with Falcon Press. And uh, like, I was lucky in that when my first book, The Dream Illuminati, came out in 1988, uh, we went to the L.A. Uh, book fair and Timothy Leary was there and I got to spend three days with him. And he was fascinating, as usual, very yeah. entertaining. He ran off at one point to get William Gibson, who had written Neuromancer and was famous for Neuromancer. And the whole cyberspace thing was just brand new at that mm. point. Uh, Gibson came over to our booth and spent time with us and uh so you know i'm very lucky in many ways of the experiences i've had and the people i've met and the things i've learned but i've had an insatiable appetite to read and so i try to just bring all that knowledge and insight into the book and that's what the journey across forever is about and and the book covers as we've covered today, so many different things. We've just touched on them. What is there? Um, is there a prescription to be found in there? What What's the uh, the action items? I hate to well, say that. <laughs> <laughs> the I think the uh, to sum it up, kind of. Uh, I I'm trying to inspire people to find the miraculous in the mundane. Mm. and the sacred in the profane Beautiful. people tend to divide life you know into categories and they think the profane world is uh, maybe a bit evil or horrible or something but this is where we learn our spiritual lessons so the, you to find the sacred in the profane 
is crucial, I think, to uh, to becoming enlightened and to evolving spiritually. Uh, we have to not reject things, but accept that the reality is is a multidimensional thing that uh, includes everything. Like you cannot exclude anything mm. from the most profane that you can imagine uh, to the most sacred. But we tend to just divide everything out and... Uh, Oh, maybe I'll go to church on Sunday and pay a little heed to my spiritual side, but that's not going to get you anywhere, really. Like, if you really mm -hmm. want to evolve spiritually and you want to become enlightened, you have to make it part of your everyday activities and thoughts and so forth. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, to meditate, I would recommend every day, even if you're just sitting doing nothing for 15 minutes in the morning. Uh, but just to find your own way of being comfortable, you don't have to have any fancy uh, yoga postures or anything. But just to let the mind just settle down and uh, to understand that uh, in silence, there's great power and often beautiful insights will just spring into the mind but you have to let all the distractions you have to turn off the phone and the tv and the radio and everything what i do is i get up first thing in the morning before everyone else in my household and i just sit and uh you know i don't make it a big deal that i'm meditating just sit and let everything be still you know you're coming out of your dreams uh, there's a lot in the book on dreams, uh, dream yeah. yoga. And uh, as you know, I've written the books about uh, the dream Illuminati. And those plots are about living our dreams. And uh, for many of us, we have we find ourselves flying in our dreams, which is interesting. Are we having out-of-body experiences? Uh, but I started at a very young age having these flying dreams. And, you know, I would uh, get a little higher with each dream in, in the sky. Sometimes I was barely off the ground. Mm. Um, then I would get over like the electric wires. And eventually, as the years went, I eventually burst into outer space. Literally, it was just amazing. Mm. Uh to burst through into outer space. Mm. And uh, I just think there's great power in that. And a lot of people have these flying dreams. So that inspired me to write the Dream Illuminati. And, you know, what if we had jetpacks, personal jetpacks, yeah, yeah. and could live our flying dreams, you know? Mm. So, uh, of course, our whole religious upbringing in the West is, is tied into the idea of angels that can fly, that... Jesus rose into heaven, you know, uh, bodily into heaven. Uh, there's levitating saints and yogis in the world. So you start studying the occult and you find out about these kinds of things. Uh, it just really is intriguing, you know, and inspiring and uh, broadens us, expands us. And I think that's what we want to do. We just want to keep expanding as people and uh, mm. 
you know, we have to take our own spiritual evolution into our own hands. It's nobody else is going to do it for us. You must do it yourself, and you can't count on anybody else to do it for you. And so spiritual liberation is a way, it's a method of moving away from organized religion and uh, doing your own thing and finding out what you think. That's what syncretism is about. And, you know, I've studied Buddhism and Hinduism in great detail and the Western traditions. Secret societies have all kinds of interesting um, insights into what life is really all about. And, you know, you can find these answers if you go searching for them. But if you don't search for them, you're not going to find them. And nobody can just tell you it's like this or that. You must have actual life experience of things in order to grow in wisdom. Mm. Mm. I like that last one. So if, I want to circle back to what you said at the beginning and, and finding the sacred and the mundane. And as you're talking, what struck me is creating heaven on earth and that that's uh, a state of mind. And then if I take what you said at the end here, taking it into our own hands, we talked about taking responsibility for ourselves. So it's our job to create a more positive paradigm in our own head of turning the sacred into the mund I'm sorry, turning the mundane into the sacred or looking at the mundane with a paradigm of the sacredness, maybe. And to grow through having experiences. That's mm. yeah, it's vital. It's absolutely vital to have life experience uh, to gain wisdom. Because yes. you can read, you know, things can't just be intellectual. And also we have to open the heart if we really want to be spiritual beings, you know, and to acknowledge our spirituality because empathy and compassion are crucial elements to uh, spirituality. And, and the more sensitive you become to the idea of spirituality, though, it, it can be well, you know, while we're here on in this world, it can be daunting because you see all the suffering that's going on and the war and the murder and the, you know, the lying, the cheating, the stealing and all these things that seem horrible to us and overwhelming. Um, and you become sensitive to that and, and you you hear the most horrific news reports about somebody getting sledgehammered to death or something like that and you you just you could you could become depressed you could think this world is horrible this this is hell hell on earth but you have to find the bigger picture and to grow beyond these materialist based uh, episodes uh, you have to get beyond the body and realize mm. your spiritual multidimensionality so that you can see that there are spiritual lessons being learned in all of this, but the karma is going to come back. And that's what the uh, afterlife experiences with the life review really bring home to us. And I do think reincarnation is very real. And if you don't learn the lessons this time around, 
you'll have to come back and keep trying to learn them, which yeah. is really a blessing, but it can seem like <laughs> a horrible sentence. But uh, this life is beautiful if you, mm. you know, create beauty in your life. What mm. you create will come back to you as well. So every life is novel. Every life is unique. No two people live the same exact life, and no two people see this world in exactly the same way. So, you know, there are billions of viewpoints and paradigms of what this life is all about, and you have to find your own and determine your own. But, you know, it takes some effort, but it can be done, and mm -hmm. it can be very enlightening and fulfilling. You know, you can reach a point where you're just almost bursting with love for this life, the beauty and magnificence of it and so forth. So uh, there are paranormal aspects and there's the materialist aspect. And uh, so it's 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 all there for us. It's all here for us. It's all there for us. I love that. Well, Wayne, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I want to put a plug in for your book, The Journey Across Forever, that just came out recently. Um, written for the Robert Anton Wilson fan, dedicated to Robert Anton Wilson, covers all the things we've talked about, but so much more, just a, a collection of wonderful little stories and, and philosophy, as you've presented to us today. Uh, we'll get some links to all your stuff in the show notes. Is there anything else you'd like to close with here? Well, just to thank you for having me on, and I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I'm delighted. I didn't even know there was all these Facebook uh, pages dedicated to Robert Anton Wilson when I first <laughs> made contact. And I didn't even know about Hillary Dispress. So uh, it's a great uh, it's a great discovery, and to find out that uh, Robert Anton Wilson's daughter, along with Richard Rossa, are uh, the owners and uh, publishers of all of Robert Anton Wilson's work now, and that was a great discovery. And um, you know, I just appreciate how kind everybody has been. And welcoming to me with my new book uh, when I said I uh, dedicated this book to him and uh, then found out all about uh, Hilaritas. And uh, now I've had the pleasure of meeting you as well. And I thank you for having me on. Oh, yeah. It's great having you. And um, may we thanks. meet again. <laughs> may we meet again. Thanks for chatting. Okay. Thank you so much, Mike. That concludes the episode. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. A big thank you to Wayne Solomon for taking the time to chat. Thank you, as always, to Christina Pearson of the Robert Anton Wilson Trust and Richard Rossa of Hilaritas Press. John Higgs will be my guest on the next episode, releasing on the 23rd of December. Until then, I am your host, Mike Gathers, signing off with love and cheerfulness. Amor e Hilaritas.
Thank you.